missed the show, no worries. We've got you covered on point and on our podcast tonight. How did they get this so wrong again? We're going to dive into the pollsters, the pundits, and how they failed to see how Donald Trump would break down their blue wall. Hell, Canada is going to be on the hot seat where they're going to have to explain how and why they threw out all the protective equipment they had been told for years to always have on hand. And Budget Day Ontario, what will the COVID-19 recovery look like in a Ford government? And why is it going to require a whole lot of money? Let's get talking. What's your point? You just don't ever get the point. Am I getting through to you? That's the point. Do you understand? There is a point. That point where enough is enough. Here's Alex Pearson on Global News Radio. Listening. This is a fraud on the American public. This is an embarrassment to our country. We were getting ready to win this election. Frankly, we did win this election. Well, that was then, and this is now, and that victory is uh, slipping further away into the rearview mirror, but it is close. And it is clear that those pointy-headed pollsters and that blue wall, all a figment of their imagination. Alex Pearson with you on the day after. Here we are on... November 4th, the day that we ended up with the worst case scenario. That is what we've got. A a worst case scenario and a vote that is way too close to call, albeit maybe it'll get called in the next uh, day or two. And a president that you know will not go quietly into the night because uh, this guaranteed loss was nothing but. I mean, it was anything but. And a lot of the results we see leave a whole lot of questions that are going to, I think, continue to feed into a growing mistrust. And I watched as long as I could. I don't know how you managed. And then uh, I drifted off once I knew that we were not going to be closing in on an actual winner last night. And uh, and we're still, you know, looking at a lot of recounts, challenges. And um, I tried to follow the network coverage, but my God, it was pitiful. It was as disastrous as the predictions that they mucked up. So there you heard uh, Donald Trump off the top. He declared victory in the very, very early morning hours. And this is that's the kind of bombacity I had hoped he would kind of stifle. I mean, it end, it might end up being true. It might. But I went to bed and I silently, I silently hoped that whatever would happen overnight, that I'd wake up and maybe he'd hold back. If, if for nothing else, then just to keep the calm. Because the votes do have to be counted. They must be. And I, I just don't think any leader of the free world should undermine the electoral process, even if it does look like it's been undermined. Because all it then does is feed into the chaos that the real dictators around the world thrive on. They love this. Love this. But, you know, it is hard to fault Trump's suspicion of the process because what happened to that blue wave? Where is it? It, it didn't turn out to be anything but a shallow puddle. So, you know, I look at this and I see even if Trump loses, he wins because this is way closer than the experts told us it would be. And I think there's got to be a whole lot of people doing a whole lot of soul searching, certainly the pollsters and the pointy heads, because their screw up just feeds into the Trump narrative of, you know, fake news and that the media is against him. I mean, it just fuels the belief that they're blinded by their hate for Trump and his supporters, which actually grew. And not with white people. I mean, for an accused racist, it's quite st- it's quite staggering when you learn that when it comes to non-white votes, he won more in this election than any other Republican since 1960. He grew that vote, that vote by 21 percent. 
And Biden, we were told, he'd sweep everything. He and his big broom would swing all the swing states in a landslide. And then, of course, we saw Florida come in, which took forever to determine. I think it was because the pundits were so shocked by their glaring errors that they just didn't want to admit it. And then we saw Texas and then Ohio. I mean, all these states were supposed to go Biden blue, and they didn't. And 67 million votes, think about that, 67 million votes, that is not a small number, went to a guy who for the last years has been up against four years of 24-7 relentless hysteria from, you know, the entire media, all of big tech, pollsters. So, you know, win or lose, uh, Trump has pulled off a pretty massive feat. And if he does end up winning, it'll be remarkable. It really will. I don't know if he's going to. I don't think he's going to. But what he's done is remarkable. But even if Biden wins, I, you know, there's not much of a, of a victory to be celebrated here because from the outside looking in, he's going to be governing a country that is so divided. And without winning the Senate and losing support in the House, I mean, he's going to have a very tough time getting anything done. They'll get nothing done. But I think the big takeaway is, is about, you know, the, quote, experts who clearly do not understand how important patriotism is to a huge portion of that country. You know, this is a, a majority of people that don't take kindly to being called racist. And they will stand up for someone who uh, stands up for America instead of apologizing for it. And I, you know, they also don't seem to see that a majority of the country doesn't see things like climate change as their pending doom. They're more worried about their dinner table and what they can put on it. And so they're seemingly pretty happy with what Trump has been able to put back in their pockets. So, look, <clears throat> Biden may end up squeaking through, but I think he's going to have a big, big challenge trying to govern this massive voting bloc that soundly rejects what they see, <coughs> pardon me, as old and, and tired and not to be trusted. And Biden himself, he's always been generally a, a centrist kind of liberal. But this race, I mean, he sold his soul to the, to the extreme left of the party that panders to socialism. I mean, he he happily fed into cancel culture, you know, played the pi, identity politics and a party that speaks down to average everyday people calling them racist all because they support other ideas. I mean, that that's the party now. I don't recognize this Democratic Party. And they had four years, you think about it, they had four years to mobilize and soundly defeat Trump, someone they see as a cancer, but they chose to, to spend their time with these daily witch hunts trying to get him out of office. I mean, had they spent more time coming up with real alternative policies that actually appeal to working class people, maybe if they tried to find a candidate who's got a pulse, who might have actually been able to serve an entire term, they might have had that blue wave but they didn't. And so a Biden win, as it uh, creeps closer, I think is going to be chaotic, certainly. And he's going to have a very tough time delivering on all these big, big leftist socialist promises, which include things like phasing out fossil fuel. He didn't win Texas. Hiking taxes and tilting further left to appease the Sanders side, which he made an awful lot of promises to. And so, yeah, you don't get the Senate, you lose power in the House, you get blocked every step of the way. And certainly, Trump's going to get an awful lot of attention for threatening to bring in all these court actions. It's already underway. But let's not be, let's not kid ourselves. The Biden team have as many lawyers on standby state to state as we speak. They both play this game. So we're going to have to wait 
I don't know, hours, days, I don't know, maybe weeks, because there's going to be all sorts of challenges over the vote count. And there's a growing chorus of voices who truly believe that the process is rigged. And uh, I just hope at some point, very soon, that we get, I think we just desperately needed sanity, because it's really exhausting. But I do hope that last night's results serve as a wake-up call to these quote-unquote experts. You know, that the 24-7 hysteria does not win you the landslides. And neither does all the finger-wagging, the uh, fear-mongering, and playing the identity politics. Because anyone thinking that Trump is gone, don't count on it. He, he's not a moment. He is a movement. And hate him as you will. But last night's results show that he is a force to be reckoned with. And he appeals to a huge part of the country who have absolutely lost trust in the system. They have turned on the political elite. And so I think it's going to be tempting for a lot of the experts today to laugh and kind of mock all these legal challenges and accusations over voter fraud. But maybe they should just stop talking and try to understand why so many people, so many everyday people see a guy like Trump as their voice instead of judging them. Because sooner or later, these pointy-headed guys and gals you know, the, the sooner they see this, the sooner they actually might see the forest through the trees. Maybe they'll start understanding the country that has been uh, left very much divided. It's quite sad. And a couple of interesting things that I picked up. I don't know if you saw some of the price tags on some of the seats last night. I mean, one, in one Senate race, the one involving Lindsey Graham, they spent $105 million, $105 million and lost they so spent all that money to take out Lindsey Graham. He ended up winning. And you lose? That's a terrible return on investment. The other thing I saw is that uh, when it looked like Trump was winning at around midnight, Chinese bonds started tanking, which tells you exactly who they see as the preferred candidate in power. So that was another little takeaway. But what I really, really want now or when this thing is decided, is for Canadians to start focusing more on their own country, which I think for our prime minister just got a lot more difficult because a Biden win will help him ideologically. But it also means a whole lot less scrutiny on, uh, you know, Trump and much more on him. Our democracy has withstood challenges before and for over 200 years. We have upheld and strengthened our commitment to basic fairness and due process. I have full faith that we will similarly meet this moment, and I will do everything within my power to ensure that the results are fair and that every vote is counted. That was Governor Wolf uh, talking about uh, the votes and that every one of them will be counted and democracy will play out fairly. And a lot of people wondering, you know, is democracy in doubt in the United States? And I'd say, hey, look, look at the massive voting turnout. I mean, that tells us that democracy worked anyway as far as that is concerned. And there's going to be a whole lot of political games with both Trump and Biden in the coming days who will both tell us that they're the big winner. And so expect that over the next couple of days. But I think the bottom line is the record numbers turned out all over the country well over a hundred million exercise of democratic right and what that tells the world is that okay no blue wave in fact it's not even close no landslides kind of more like a puddle but just like 2016 the pollsters and pundits got it very wrong and this in spite of years of breathless hysteria telling us just how evil donald trump is how the walls of you know are closing in on his hate and so seeing these very close results tells people okay uh, we got it wrong. But also what is clear is that no matter who wins, 
There's not going to be a whole lot of peace when it comes to the transition. And we got to watch this carefully. Dr. Belkin Devlin is a senior fellow at McDonald Laurier Institute. He has extensive expertise on foreign policy, international security, and international affairs. Good to have you. Thanks for having me. So Trump's vote was not just competitive. I mean, he still could very well end up winning this thing. But, you know, after four years of, of relentless media coverage, this, you know, hysteria of hate, I mean, there was no question. He was up against a lot of odds. And the polling on this thing, as you well saw, projected that he'd be decimated, that Joe Biden, this was his to win. And so, you know, we're looking at the results now. And it's hard, I think, for a lot of people to look back and say, hey, none of this adds up. I think what what the big one of the big uh, problems with what we are witnessing is that it's just going to create a whole lot more distrust. That is correct. I think, um, particularly with regards to how the media handled it, as well as the pollsters, uh, and this is the, the sort of second in a round, um, uh, there is a joke going around in Twitter uh, saying that, yes, we learned, you know, uh, from our mistakes in 2016. Now, here is a, a new set of mistakes in polls that we did. Um, so I think there will be an increase in distrust about how these things are measured and whether uh, there is a, you know, inherent bias in how the media and, and, and the polling sort of methodologies that are being run um, against the Republicans or particularly against Trump um, uh, going forward. And the second thing I think this election really tells us uh, is that the, the polarization goes very deep um, mm-hmm. within American, uh, American society. So it is, you know, I, I would say this is very shallow to um, reduce this to the Trump. Trump, in, in that sense, is, is an avatar of this sort of deeper, um, deeper polarization. And regardless of the election, who end up being sort of the president, I, I don't think this, this deep polarization um, disappears anytime soon. No, because if, if Biden ends up winning, he's going to have a very tough job governing because uh, the Republicans control the Senate. Uh, the Republicans also gain more control in the House. But, you know, so they can stop a lot of what he even tries to do. But exactly. I think a lot of people look at Donald Trump as if he's a moment. And I keep saying, no, 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 he's a movement. And this voice that he represents is not going away. In fact, it's getting bigger. Exactly. Exactly. And I mean, um if you think that with the you know disappearance or sort of um, going away of, of Donald Trump, the, the the structures that bring him there, or or the sort of the resentments and the polarization within American society brings the, brings him to the presidency, it just dissipates. That's not that's not going to happen. And in, in four years, uh, <laughs> Republicans might end up having a slightly more likable. Uh, candidate, but, you know, basically having the same moment and, and recapture the presidency, because I don't think the, the, the root causes of that polarization is being addressed. And, and Democrats, at least from what I can see from Europe, from in Canada, uh, are not willing to address those uh, deep set disagreements within the population, but more interested in sort of uh, continuing or doubling down the blaming uh, for those who, who end up voting for Trump. Right. And I mean, there's a lot to learn from this. And I certainly hope those uh, experts and, uh, um, you know, uh, kind of take some time to, to reflect on how they got it so badly again uh, wrong, because what they don't seem to understand is that Trump, hate him or like him, he transformed the Republican Party. He has grown the base. Uh, you know, he, he picked up a lot of support with the working class, with minorities, the Hispanic, the black vote. That can't be ignored. They like what he says. They don't want to be called racist. They like patriotism. They believe in what he says. 
um, and they will continue supporting him, like it or not. Exactly. And I think one, I mean, I need to look at the sort of the numbers once they are more clear. But to me, it looks like the polarization is less about, say, race, uh, as as many on the left would like to make this about, but more on um, education levels. I mean, there is, I would say there is a lot more um, uh, polarization within American society between, you know, highly educated, uh, you know, coastal elites versus uh, the rest of the country. And this mm-hmm. seems to be cutting more across uh, racial lines uh, rather than sort of education lines. And uh, and if that is the case, it is, uh, you know, those who are living in that particular bubble um, uh, in, in media, in, in academia, in, in polling and other sort of uh, intellectual uh, professions uh, are being, you know, living in this, in this sort of echo chamber. And therefore that, that's partly, I think, explains uh, their sort of... Uh, failure to to figure out or to see this result coming up. And so but we're, we're going to see now this back and forth between uh, Joe Biden and, and Donald Trump as they they, you know, declare themselves the winner. Um, it, we're in a bit of a dangerous phase now because the last thing we want are the courts to be brought in to decide this. Um, there's a lot of recounts going on. There's a lot of questions about ballots uh, that are illegal, uh, votes that shouldn't be allowed. Uh, so, you know, we could be looking at weeks of this uh, volatility, but this is where I think and I don't know if you agree that it can get very dangerous. Dangerous. Yes, I mean, uh, I think it can go in, in one of the two ways. If this is sorted out in, in the next three days, um, either one way or another, that is, you know, with recounts or not, and then whether the, uh, you know, the, the ch- legal challenges succeed or not. But we do, if we end up having a clear picture emerging in the next three days, then either Trump winning or, or Biden winning. Uh, we will be in a much better position compared to if this ends up dragging beyond these three days, challenge after challenge, going to the Supreme Court. If it does go there, it's a coin flip, uh, to be to be honest. At this stage, um, it looks, if it ends up in the next three days, it looks like a Biden win is more likely compared to a Trump win. But um, Trump campaign already said that you know they, they are going to ask for a recount in, in Wisconsin. Uh, they are suing to stop um, counting in Michigan and will do so in Pennsylvania. Uh, whether those lawsuits would proceed, um, I think, is, is is a crucial matter. If they did not, then we will know the results quickly, and I think that will be the best outcome for Canada. If this drags on for weeks on until going to the Supreme Court, that would create such a bitterness on both camps, whoever yeah. end up being the president, and would significantly undermine the legitimacy of the new president or, or the, you know, the second term of a Trump uh, presidency in the eyes of the half of the population. Um, so I think that sort of uh, situation, that sort of continuing tension boiling over the next term uh, of, uh, of, of US presidency, I think is, is the worst outcome for us. No kidding. It would be the exact kind of chaos that the actual dictators of the world would absolutely love to welcome and usher yeah. into uh, to America. So, you know, if we learn nothing of this, then uh, don't play to those dictators because they love when America is uh, is at odds. Um, doctor, we will watch this carefully. I'll probably draw on your big brain again, but I appreciate your time on this. Thanks for having me. That is Dr. Balkan Devlin joining us here. And um, yeah, look, if if these experts and the pointy-headed academics don't start 
kind of doing some self and soul searching, I, they're going to continue to miss the forest through the trees. And, and that should be their takeaway because it was right in front of them and they just are blinded by their anger and hate that they are just not seeing it. All righty, it is time to dive in between the headlines where we find a lot of those juicy little news nuggets, the ones that often get missed certainly in the last couple of uh, days with the news cycle, but they shouldn't because they are important and matter to you. And no one does it better than, of course, our friends over at Black Locks Reporting, where Tom Korski, who's managing editor, does a lot of that digging. Hello, Tom. Hi, Alex. All right, so all eyes on uh, the United States. Um, and, and while all eyes are on the United States, some pretty big things happening here. And that would include uh, the Liberal government tabling this bill, Bill C-10. And this thing is all sorts of problems just bundled up in one, but but it's being pushed as a way to regulate the internet and it will uh, bring hundreds of millions in of revenue for broadcasters because of course the tech giants will have to pay. But the reality is there's a whole lot of spin to this and it's uh, going to end up costing the taxpayers as I understand. It's interesting, uh, just to, when you open, you say they're gonna regulate the internet. That's sort of an arresting moment there. Yeah. I just had to, just pausing for a moment. Because for 25 years, uh, people in Ottawa have said, we can't regulate the Internet. Only North Korea regulates the Internet. But they did table this bill for first ever Internet regulation. They say, Cabinet says, uh, focusing on uh, web streamers, uh, Netflix, uh, Disney, uh, Spotify, Apple Music, uh, that they want to regulate them uh, like they do TV and radio stations, which means that you will have to have certain uh, amount of Canadian content, you'll have to put in so much money to Canadian programming, etc. Highly controversial, the companies won't like it, and uh, we'll see where that bill goes, but that is a giant leap for regulation of the internet, that's for sure. Well, not only is it um, a giant leap, it's something that they said that they would not do. They campaigned on not doing this. But I mean, when you look at it, when you hear it on the surface, you think, OK, that's that's great. But the complexities of regulating all of this is nearly impossible. And I think Bill C-10 is doomed to die because, as you say, these streaming services, the second you tell them, oh, by the way, you have to do X, Y and Z for Canadian content, a lot of which they're already doing, Tom, and something our broadcaster that we pay a billion dollars for should already be doing and don't. I mean, they're going to say. We're now going to pay you more? Uh, no. And the other thing is, is they're planning on putting on this sales tax, but it's not on the tech giants. It's actually going to be on the Canadian people. Well, that's exactly the point. Once you regulate something, then you have to tax it. That's the only reason government regulates anything in the first place. It's because it's really just all about the money. Problem. If you're Netflix, your whole business model is... You do not invest in antennas. You offer this service on the Internet, and the customer absorbs the cost of the receiver, that is, the computer, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So uh, you're challenging Steve Jibo, Minister of Heritage, in his own inimical way, is challenging the very business model of these multinational media companies. Because if Steve gets in on the act, you know that every county tax assessor from here to France is going to want to get in on the act. I have a feeling many a lawyer will be paying off their speedboat in litigating that bill. Right. So where does Bill C-10 go then? Is this going to get pushed through? Is it going to get support from the opposition? I mean, because there's a lot to pick uh, through. I, I mean, I, 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 I think this one's a dangerous one. 
I think they have votes uh, from the NDP alone to get this bill through the House and then subsequently Senate. But I do think it's going to court. No no one said that yesterday, but I think that's just a gimme. And uh, those multinational corporations don't have a bad record when it comes to defending their business model in court. They've done pretty well, which is why they have been unregulated and untaxed to date. There was one other interesting thing about uh, Bill C-10, the dog that didn't bark. Cabinet has wanted to uh, regulate Internet news media, and they didn't do it in this bill. They dropped it, not because that's wrong, Alex, but because, (laughs) as the heritage minister said, we'll never get that through parliament. It's a minority house. We just don't have the votes. That'll, That'll come another day. It will come another day. Maybe when they get a majority. But it will not come, no, it will not come in a minority. Um, but yeah, that that was the interesting one that he got caught on. There was a whole lot of blowback, and they uh, seem to have walked that back. But it will walk out yet, as you say, for another day. Um, Public health agency yesterday has now been ordered, and I think this is interesting, ordered to disclose how many masks, gowns, and all this other PPE that was thrown away in the months uh, prior to the pandemic or given away. And the MPs on the Commons Government Operations um, did vote in favor for this, but of course the Liberals voted against it, calling it a fishing expedition, which is looking for problems where they don't exist. I mean, (laughs) it's laughable. The Public Health Agency was just sort of this... It's just sort of this bizarre, you know, Parliament set them up uh, 16 years ago, very clear mandate as a pandemic preparedness agency. They were going to be the fire department. They had a lot of money. Mm -hmm. There can be no crying over inadequate budgets. They had millions. And yet they have not disclosed how much material they threw away. We know there was material thrown away. Millions of high-grade N95 masks when they closed a warehouse in Regina. And MPs have been asked after this information, this is this is an arresting fact. MPs have been trying to find out since May how many masks the health agency threw away. And the health agency won't tell them. This is November. And MPs finally snapped They got this vote through and they said, you're getting us that information by the 1st of December. Knock it off. Why does it matter? Because the uh, vice president who was in charge of the warehouses has already resigned. The president of the agency has resigned. Internal audits show that those guys couldn't run a hot dog stand. That was your pandemic preparedness unit. A catastrophe, Alex. Yeah, yeah, you know, and and they should all pray that Donald Trump ends up winning this thing because as long as Donald Trump is uh, around, I mean, everyone's distracted from the fact that this is part of the failure of this government's uh, handling of this uh, of this virus, and it's very clear, like so many other things to do with uh, COVID nineteen, they don't want it out. They were mandated to have a four month supply of medical goods in case of a pandemic. They had reports and audits saying a pandemic is inevitable because that's how the world works. Every 20 years or so, you get a pandemic. They didn't prepare and they actually threw equipment. They were left hanging so badly when COVID-19 came along, they shipped date-expired goods to mm-hmm. provinces to send to doctors and nurses. Honestly, resignation is too good for some of these people. I've always thought there's going to be an inquiry at the end of this. Mm-hmm. And the name to remember is Public Health Agency. Their head is on the block. 
Well, there should be a reckoning on many fronts on this thing, but you're right. Uh, we had the warning. It was called SARS, and they ignored all of the findings in this. All right, Tom, thank you very much. I appreciate your time always. My pleasure, Alex. That is Tom Korski, managing editor over at Black Locks Reporting. Of course, a subscription-based magazine worth every. Tomorrow's budget will begin to remove the biggest barriers to growth for communities across the province. One thing that we've all learned from this global pandemic is the value of humility. Being confident enough to admit what we don't know, but bold enough to learn from our collective experience. So while Ontario's 2020 budget will look confidently to the future, it will not presume that any of us have all the answers. Well, that is your finance minister, Mr. Rod Phillips, and I think he's saying uh, that is code for changes coming. And yes, tomorrow, believe it or not, is budget day in Ontario. So we're going to see the details of how the Ford government plans to get us out of this whole big COVID mess. And the last update we got was way back in March. And the picture it painted was pretty stark. We had a uh, deficit projection nearing $40 billion. And remember, you got to remember, this is a government that campaigned on balancing budgets. And what is clear is that's not going to happen anytime soon. But what's also clear, I think, from today, uh, of the few things that Mr. Phillips had to say is that Ontario is not on the table. Taxes are also not on the table, though there's going to be big spending on things like big infrastructure changes, uh, long-term care, stuff like that, and support for a lot of the industries wiped out by COVID-19. I want to bring Jas Jasmine Moulton into this conversation, Director of the Ontario Taxpayers Federation. Good to have you, Jasmine. Thanks for having me. All right. So you're going to be watching this all very, very closely. I know everyone's very distracted with so much going on right now in the world, but this is the dollars and cents, you know, the minding of what we pay out all the time. What are you looking for uh, tomorrow? What are the big things that you need to and want to see? So we're looking for three main things. We want tax cuts tomorrow. We want the government to reduce non-essential government spending. And we also want a fiscal anchor or some sort of plan on when this government plans to return to balance. Um, so just off the top with the first one there, tax cuts. It's not enough to just say we're not going to raise taxes. Um, as we saw Justin Trudeau do when he raised the carbon tax back on April 1st, what we want to see is actually a reduction. So, Alex, taxes are the single largest expense that the average Canadian family faces. Last year, we saw taxes eat up 45% of their income, which is a lot of money. So mm -hmm. the best thing that the premier could do tomorrow for uh, struggling families and businesses to help them get back on the seat would be to lower their tax bill. Yes, it would be nice. <laughs> it would be a miracle, but it would be uh, it would be nice. It would be refreshing because, uh, you know, until they've found their own, um, you know, efficiencies, as I like to call them, I, I, I get really angry that all three levels of government just kind of keep coming to the taxpayer and saying, here, we need more. But I definitely get the sense from Mr. Phillips. And, and Phillips is a Bay Street guy. He knows dollars and cents. So, you know, he, I, I have faith that he knows what he's doing. But I think it was clear in some of the comments that he made today that now is not the time to be, uh, you know, not supporting things like business businesses and um, and that COVID-19 has presented an opportunity. And I think we might see some overhauling on things like regulations that can be very cumbersome. And, and I know that they've tried to streamline government services, uh, you know, and things like that. But I also know that they want to do big infrastructure spending on uh, transit, on long-term care and things like high-end internet access for uh, smaller communities outside the GTA. 
So I do want to be really clear that there's a difference between good spending and bad spending. Uh, good sorts of spending, just even in our own personal lives, might be on you know a mortgage or a student loan, things that can help us grow in the future. But there's also such a thing as bad spending. Like if I were to go to the mall right now and you know blow five hundred dollars on on just some retail spending, when it comes to the government, they need to do the, recognize that they should do the same. We're in a pandemic. Healthcare spending is completely, you know, reasonable right now. But the problem with this government is that they're spending a lot of money right now racking up debt on things that have nothing to do with the pandemic. So, for example, this year, the Ford government is giving out an across the board government wide mm-hmm. raise in Ontario. It's going to cost taxpayers $720 million. And mm-hmm. keep in mind, 90% of the job losses that came from COVID 19 happened outside of government. So now we have fewer taxpayers holding up the massive burden of government. Uh, The Ford government should not be handing out raises. They should be handing out pink slips, frankly. And there are a lot of taxpayers who have taken pay cuts or lost their jobs entirely. I think it's completely reasonable that government should be doing the same and Ford should not be handing out raises. And I'll point out that actually the single largest expense uh, for government every year is the cost of government employees. There's 1.3 million of them in Ontario. Um, So that would be a prime area where uh, Ford should find some savings. Well, you, you're right. I mean, you're never going to see them give pink slips, slips to the to the public sector because that would be far too much political um, capital for them to waste, certainly when they've got the polls up where they want them. Uh, but but again, we hear this messaging all the time, Jasmine, that we're all in this together. And it is very clear. We are not all in this together. The private sector is being absolutely shellacked. I know of nobody, including in my own household, who has not had their um, salary uh, cut. And so, you know, it would be and it should be an opportunity for these efficiencies to say, hey, look, uh, we're asking the public sector to, to take a pay freeze for, for a couple of years, uh, maybe reduce 10% just so we can get through this. It, it, otherwise, you know, we, we will have to cut. But again, they just have to be honest with the taxpayers. But these are moves that I think both the federal and provincial levels should be doing. Absolutely. We couldn't agree more. And it's not as if there's no room to find savings. Uh, Many reports going back to the 70s from the University of Toronto all the way up to Fraser Institute reports today confirm what taxpayers already know, which is that government employees earn more retire sooner and have better pensions and benefits than those in the private sector. We saw in Ontario, it's a 10.3% wage premium that they have over comparable counterparts with the same education, doing the same sorts of work outside of government. So there's certainly rooms for saving there. Um, We also saw that the Ford government handed out some corporate welfare recently to the Ford Mm. Motor Company, $295 million straight from taxpayers' pockets to the 12th largest company on the planet. Um, So that's another thing that we're looking for. Um, Look, we're not saying that spending should go down during a global pandemic, but let's cut the waste. Um, Like you say, families across the province are tightening their belt. Uh, We're saving money, finding savings where we can. The government needs to do the same. What is a reasonable expectation uh, from, from, you know, kind of critics within organizations like yourself? What would be reasonable as far as, um, you know, getting rid of this unexpected deficit? I mean, no one can blame the Ford government, certainly for this emergency. No one apparently saw it coming. Um, but what is a reasonable expectation, given they ran on, on, on balancing the books? And we know that's out the window now. But when should they be? Uh, what would be fair? 
Well, if we reverse back to 2018 when the Ford government was elected, him and his now finance minister set the target that they were going to balance the budget in five years, which, as your listeners will know, is very convenient because their mandate was only four years. So Mm -hmm. um, we slammed them pretty hard for uh, dropping the ball on that one. People didn't elect Doug Ford to... Uh, be Kathleen Wynne 2.0 and continue Mm -hmm. to add to the debt, continue to run deficits. So we were really disappointed when at first he said uh, it was going to be five years. Um, But the truth is that we don't know um, how soon. It really depends how well the economy recovers. It depends if there will be more uh, lockdowns coming from from this government that might Mm -hmm. hinder the economic recovery. So we don't know how long, but it's really irresponsible. In fact, it's pulling a Justin Trudeau to say, we have no target. We'll spend what we're going to spend. And we don't have a, a fiscal anchor. We need one in Ontario. And I really uh, hope to see that from this government. Yeah. The only thing I'll give the Ford government is at least they're tabling a budget, whereas the uh, Liberals have not only said there's no fiscal anchor, but <laughs> we have no clue uh, what their budget is because they're not tabling one. So nonetheless. All right, true. Jasmine, we will keep an eye on this. And I appreciate you uh, diving in and giving us a heads up because, of course, no one's paying attention to it. But it is about mining our dollars and cents. And it is happening, of course, on this Thursday. Appreciate you joining us. Thanks so much, Alex. That is Jasmine Moulton joining us from the Ontario uh, Taxpayers Federation. By the way, we will have full coverage on the budget and uh, we will have reporters in lockup. We'll get you a full um, rundown of what is going to be spent, what is going to be saved. I doubt anything will be cut, but we will have a full layout of what the provincial plan for recovery looks like in our show on Thursday. You, of course, can join us live Monday through Friday, 6.30 to 10. I'm Alex Pearson on Point, and this is Global News Radio.